On the Sunshine Economy today, the South Florida economy and the epidemiology of COVID-19. You get to a certain point where Delta has spread to a significant group of people who are susceptible. The increase that we're seeing now because of Delta, question there will be whether that puts a pause button on cruising or airlines. I'm Tom Hudson. The South Florida economy has been growing, but it remains far from its pre-pandemic condition. Meantime, the virus continues spreading. Maybe we're 75% there in terms of employment. We still have high levels of transmission. It's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. This is a special Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Please continue showing your support for public radio and WLRN with a contribution during our program. Thank you. Asking an epidemiologist and someone who watches the economy about the state of things as the pandemic continues, and this is what you hear. On the mend? I think I would call it on the mend. This is Professor Howard Frank with FIU's Metropolitan Center. The center publishes an economic recovery index for South Florida. Unemployment has come down. The overall number of people employed is still, I'd say, 10 to 15 percent below where it was 2019, but it's on the mend. I would be sounding like Eisenhower. I think I'd be warily optimistic, cautiously optimistic. As for the epidemiologist? In South Florida, I think we have uh, two ways to look at the state of the pandemic. Dr. Zinzi Bailey is a social epidemiologist at the University of Miami. We are much better than we were just a few months ago with the spike of Delta. We are on the downward trajectory. Everything else is also declining hospitalizations as well as deaths. That's good news. Things are better than they have been over the past few months. But we are still in the highest level of community transmission. So for the virus and the South Florida economy, Things have improved compared to what we've experienced, but the recovery from the germ and its economic consequences are far from complete. Jobs have returned, but there remain 200,000 fewer positions in South Florida compared to the month before the pandemic, and more than 100,000 fewer people are considered part of the workforce. The hospitality sector has been the hottest in the job market, increasing more than 60% since the depths of the COVID-induced economic depression. It's also the most vulnerable to the virus, highlighting how the South Florida economy remains very exposed to the germ. I wonder, are we going to see changes perhaps in the workplace and elsewhere that affect travel? Every time there's a, a flare-up, we will get affected more, impacted more, but there's also, I don't know whether people will want to come here for conferencing, just because maybe the days of conferencing are uh, going to be diminished. I, I, I'm a member of two professional societies where this year they had half their normal attendance still at their face-to-face -face conferencing. So I don't know, maybe people are going to get used to Zooming and they won't want to do conferencing here or elsewhere. And that highlights one of the challenges of how some companies are responding with employee vaccine requirements, especially companies in industries where workers are in contact with the public, like healthcare and hospitality. We're essentially caught between a rock and a hard place. 
where we have to be weighing these risks, right? Oftentimes people are able to get vaccination and are willing to do so with this push. I think right now we are in a very political standpoint regarding which direction we want to go and what a vaccine refusal versus compliance means. What we've seen is about one in 10 South Florida companies require proof of a COVID-19 vaccine, according to Census Bureau data. A slightly higher percentage are requiring employees to test negative before coming to work. Still to come, unemployment pay and reassessing work and wages. I wonder if people at the lower end of the wage spectrum are doing a wholesale reevaluation of how much they're willing to take. I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy. Continue making your donation to WLRN during our program, and thank you for your support. Tens of thousands of more people in South Florida are working today compared to even a year ago, but tens of thousands of more people also are no longer counted as part of the job market, even as companies are scrambling to fill open positions. It's just one of the confounding features of this pandemic economic recovery. I spoke with Howard Frank with FIU's Metropolitan Center, which tracks the COVID economic recovery in South Florida. It can be kind of hard sometimes, maybe, I think, for people to see the economic activity that's happening, to feel like there's uh, somewhat of a return to normal. But yet then when we see jobs data, for instance, to understand there are still hundreds of thousands of fewer jobs in Florida compared to what we saw in January and February of 2020 before the pandemic? I think it's tough to sort out things that are happening all at the same time. You've got this tremendous increase in savings coupled with a tremendous increase in credit card debt. You're seeing unemployment go down, but there are clearly a lot of people who have left the labor force. You hear that you know, there's a 20% year-over-year increase in housing, but you know there are lots of people facing eviction. So maybe it, it isn't easily understood because it seems like it's so contradictory. There's just so many contradictory, conflicting signals. It's just not easy, I think, for a person to understand that. We're even experts in economics. It's, it's unique. Unprecedented is the right. word, right? <laughs> Unprecedented. Yep. When it comes to employment, there has been a lot of attention focused on how the federal government stepped in and boosted state unemployment payments to those folks that lost jobs. Uh, Florida and a handful of states decided to end that extra federal booster payment earlier than what the federal government had originally planned for. How do longer and increased unemployment benefits impact the supply of labor. I came across, you know, what we would call a meta-analysis, which is really a synthesis of prior research on the disincentives of unemployment compensation. This is from the Upjohn Institute, which is arguably maybe the nation's leading think tank when it comes to employment issues. And their synthesis really distills to a range between a day, let's say to two and a half to three days of extended duration of unemployment for every week in 
benefit extension. There are clearly disincentive effects, which by the way, some would argue might have a positive effect if it means you're not re-entering the workforce at a wage that's far below where you started before unemployment. On the other hand, I think that the unavailability of affordable daycare is playing a role. I wonder if people at the lower end of the wage spectrum are doing a wholesale reevaluation of how much they're willing to take to be in, let's call it high-risk employment, to the extent that um, they have to come into contact with human beings when you and I can spend time at home. And that's another factor in and of itself. Some people in this economy have gotten kind of an implicit wage increase by being able to work remotely. Others don't have that. So I think unemployment compensation, that's clearly there. But I think we'll see that there are other factors that are playing a role here. There's just the wholesale, I think, reassessment of employment among a, a large segment of people. I think we may see disincentive effects in the lowest part of our wage distribution. There's just a wholesale reevaluation of what they will take to re-enter. There's unemployment compensation, but I'm wondering if the marketplace is just readjusting at the low end of the, of the spectrum to account for having to be there. And I'll call it the, the perks that some who are working remotely get and they can't. It has been called the great reassessment across income scales of people uh, reassessing their relationship with work and, and income and pay. The readjustment in the lower end pay scale and the readjustment that we've seen employers and the industries that tend to be near or close to minimum wage increasing substantially those wages to try to attract a labor supply back to the market. There's signals that are being sent, and I think the labor market is responding. Whether they'll be permanent or not, we'll see. Wages generally are pretty sticky on the downside. I think the question will be, will these wage gains cover the cost of living? Bureau of Labor Statistics came out and said, disposable, per, quoting here, disposable personal income or after-tax income adjusted for inflation decreased three-tenths of a percent in August. So, yeah, we're getting wage increases, but at a time, and certainly I see it when I go grocery shopping, where there is tremendous inflation. You'd like to think that those at the lower ends of the income spectrum are getting a wage boost that matters, but are they getting it against the backdrop of higher prices? That's Howard Frank. He watches the economy at FIU's Metropolitan Center. Now, still to come, the epidemiology of the COVID-19 pandemic, seasonality, COVID, and returning to the workplace. I don't see any indication of a summer seasonal spike as a natural part of the epidemiology of COVID. This is a special Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Please continue showing your support for public radio with a contribution during our program. Thank you. 
This past summer was the second summertime surge of COVID-19 in Florida. There were vaccines, companies began bringing some workers back to the office, and then the highly contagious Delta strain, which took a toll. The infection rates, hospitalizations, and deaths are decreasing now. That's good news, of course. But the surge in cases was not because of the summer season, says Dr. Zinzi Bailey, an epidemiologist with the University of Miami. Some have contended what South Florida and Florida have experienced since July is a seasonal spike in the coronavirus. Has it been a seasonal spike? Is that the right way epidemiologically to think about it? Epidemiologically, we are thinking about seasonality with regard to kind of spikes in uh, respiratory illnesses. And I would say that we actually would expect the exact opposite uh, to what we're seeing here. Meaning a decrease in the summertime. We would expect a decrease. We'd expect a spike during the winter, even though we can say that, you know, we have a very mild winter. It's not about the temperature necessarily. It is about um, the overall ecology, right? Um, other places are cold. Other We have a transmission from a, a range of people, right? And so we'd expect even in the winter in Florida, things like the flu to spike. So epidemiologically, it doesn't really follow. It has to do with a combination of our behaviors, Delta, as well as essentially interaction with policy. So essentially, we've started to transition back to being in indoor places. I know that a lot of employers are starting to bring people back into the building. We have allowed a lot more events to happen. And particularly in Florida, we actually have an intense heat, right? So a lot of people are driven indoors to share the the joys of air conditioning. But what that is, it's a compact space that you're sharing with other people where you might have less social distancing, you don't have the open air, and you might be interacting with multiple people. So if you're not masked properly and you're indoors, you're at increased risk for getting COVID and spreading COVID. I think that there's a merging of two key risks, which is people flocking indoors uh, because of the heat and then the rise of Delta as the predominant strain of SARS-CoV-2. I would say (laughs) I don't see any indication of a summer seasonal spike as a natural part of the epidemiology of COVID. You mentioned offices kind of reopening, employers bringing folks back who could work from home Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. but back into that office. What are some of the considerations as an epidemiologist that companies and managers should think about as they are encouraging workers to come back into the office for those workers who had been able to work from home? So I think we have to think about vaccination status, and we have to think about the underlying baseline kind of level of transmission. Uh, We are still in a high-risk situation. So it's not a situation where we're completely back to normal, right? Like, That's not the situation we're in, even with vaccination. And thinking about what employers can do to encourage workers to be vaccinated. What do you think the impact is of employer vaccine requirements? It can get tricky in terms of the implementation. I think there's a a range of options that can happen in terms of a vaccine mandate. It could be in some places, for example, for healthcare workers or with United, 
United Airlines, the the air, yeah, the air carrier. Yes. So if you don't get vaccinated, you're out, right? Uh, there could be that, but there's different ranges that I've seen different employers take on. If you are not vaccinated, then you're going to have weekly testing or every three days testing, maybe at cost uh, to you. You might have incentives for people um, actually demonstrating their vaccination status. So there's a range of different options within a, a vaccine mandate. It sets an idea of what is normal for you to do within the employer setting, the expectation of your employer um, regarding your vaccination status, number one. Number two, it also creates a better environment for those who have been vaccinated where they feel a little bit safer coming in if they know that they're coming in with other vaccinated people. Speaking with Dr. Zinzi Bailey, a social epidemiologist with the University of Miami. Now, still to come, after more than a year and a half of this virus, the balance between public health and the economy. It's important to know that a public health impact is not divorced from an economic impact. I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Please continue making your donation to WLRN during our program. Thank you for that generosity. Florida was one of the first states to reopen after the sudden shutdown to slow the spread of COVID-19 in those early weeks of the pandemic. More than a year later, the balance between the need for economic activity and public health protections remains as charged as it did then. We spoke about this with University of Miami social epidemiologist Dr. Zinzi Bailey. How do you think about weighing the economic impact of restrictions and protocols and the public health impact of those same types of policy decisions now that we're so many months into this pandemic? I think that it's hard to weigh these against one another because I don't think that they're mutually exclusive health impact is going to take into account economic impacts because our economics are one of the major drivers of our health. A public health approach does take into account a holistic standpoint. I think it's more about a question of the amount of time we're thinking about. In the very short term, we can be thinking about what the impacts are on the rates and being under control. We can think about that from an individual level, a collective level. But if we're taking a longer term view, there might be things that we need to do in the short term in order to prevent you know, more scrambling later on. And I think that is where we're not having the appropriate balance um, in our discussions regarding weighing these economic and public health impacts. It's important to know that a public health impact is not divorced from an economic impact. We can't divorce economics from public health. So we need to be thinking about both. I think this polarity is really driven more from our politics than from the reality. I think there's a lot in between that we can be working through in order to take into account both public health economics. So let me ask a a follow-on question like this then, Professor Bailey. So many months into the pandemic, are we learning how to live both from a public health aspect as well as an economic aspect with this virus? So yes and no. 
I think that there is still a segment of our population that's still waiting to go back to normal. And I think there's a sense of denial about where we are. Going back to, you know, that weighing and and thinking about time um, and what we might do in the short term versus the long term. You know, if we had been a little bit more, um, I don't want to say aggressive, but a little bit more assertive in how we dealt with, you know, the pandemic at the beginning, we might not be as far gone as we currently are. Or we at least would have been able to set up some infrastructure in a shorter period of time. We need to be thinking about how we are going to live with COVID as it seems to be getting to be endemic, which is just another way of saying that it's something that is going to be kind of with us for a while. It's just a part of the host of diseases that we tend to have. Like the flu comes in different seasons, it might be more or less, but it's something that's regularly found within our population. We'll always have COVID. That's what it's seeming like right now. I hope that is different, but I think that we need to be a little bit more straightforward or or a little bit more serious about living with COVID. So we might need to be thinking about how our lives might change that doesn't necessarily change who we are, but it just changes some of our behaviors and what we consider as normal. Dr. Zinzi Bailey is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Miami. Don't miss any episode of the Sunshine Economy. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Just search Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. And please leave a review. Michael Stock is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting Public Radio. WLRN Public Media.